I'm the oldest of six kids, so that when my family would go on a family vacation and my mom would suggest, why don't we go to a zoo? I would reply and say, why should we go to a zoo? I live in one. <laughs> That's my dad joke of the day. But when my siblings and I would get into disputes over birth order, sometimes things would get just a little bit heated. Now, as the oldest child, I tend to be maybe a little bit opinionated. I'm kind of classic oldest child personality. Any other oldest children out there? Thank you. Appreciate you. We know how each other work, right? Well, when we get into debates, my younger siblings like to say, well, you're the oldest. You're clearly mom and dad's favorite. I'm like, yeah, right. I'm definitely not the favorite. I'm the guinea pig. I was the lab rat that was experimented on to make life easier on you. Now, that doesn't always go over very well, but I'm convinced that, you know, I had it hard and my younger siblings had it easy. And then there's the youngest, the spoiled baby of the family. Any youngest children out there? Great. Now, my younger brother thinks that, youngest brothers think that they missed out on everything, but, you know, looking back, they had a totally different life than I had when I was growing up. For example, when I was in junior high, I had it so hard. <laughs> my parents would make me wear dress slacks and a tucked-in shirt to church. I, I was miserable as a seventh grader. I'm scarred for life. Now, when my brothers were in junior high, they got to wear sweatpants. I was like, that's not fair. I didn't watch a PG-13 movie until I was 14 and it was left behind. <laughs> 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 Which doesn't count. I'm pretty sure my younger brothers were watching Star Wars when they were four. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but I don't remember. But then there's the neglected middle child. Any middle children out there? And you know, my middle siblings will complain that they were often forgotten or neglected, whether that's true or not. I don't know. I tend not to believe them, but um, that's because I'm the oldest, right? I think of uh, one of my brothers who happens to be a middle child, must not have been getting enough attention at one point of his life when he was three or four. And our family was out shopping at Kohl's, which was the first mistake. And you know, my brother decided without telling my mom that he wanted to play hide and seek in Kohl's. So he is missing in Kohl's for who knows how long. It probably felt like an hour to my mom. She has all these thoughts running through her head of my child just got abducted in the middle of Kohl's. And meanwhile, my brother's just hiding underneath the men's jeans. It's because he would say it was because he felt neglected. Those poor, neglected middle children. Now, obviously, I'm speaking a little bit tongue-in-cheek about my childhood, but middle children do often complain about feeling neglected. Now, if one of God's attributes was a neglected middle child, it would certainly be his wrath. Now, I'm not talking about God's attributes from God's perspective. I'm talking about them from our perspective. Because there's this tendency in our world and Christian culture, maybe even in our own hearts, to push away God's wrath or to diminish it, or to soften it. Maybe it makes ourselves feel better. Maybe we think we have a better view of God that way. But before we go any farther, let's just define God's wrath. So this, his passionate hatred of wickedness and righteous response to sin. God's wrath is his passionate hatred of wickedness and his righteous response to sin. And as we look at the book of Nahum tonight, 
it is filled with God's wrath, which has led some scholars to try to reduce Nahum to be some false prophet who really had no idea what he was talking about, or because they think that, you know, God can't be that mean. He can't be that cruel. Nahum just has to be a bad example for us. And we see that same tendency in Christian culture today to reduce or to limit or to soften the wrath of God. I think of a theological belief called universalism, which suggests that at the end of the day, everybody gets to go to heaven. Everybody gets a second chance, that there's not going to be anybody in hell. And that's a belief that was made very popular in the last decade in pop Christianity by Rob Bell in a book called Love Wins. Maybe you've heard of it. But even outside of universalism, where everybody gets to go to heaven, there's another belief called annihilationism, which is similar but different, believing that hell's not going to last forever, that those who don't go to heaven, that they'll just cease to exist, they'll be annihilated. Now, it might not be as bad as universalism, but it's still what we'd consider heresy. It's still a major theological issue in the church today. But it uncovers this trend to try to reduce the wrath of God. And certainly God's wrath is far bigger and far broader than just sending sinners to hell, but certainly hell is the climax, the consequence of God's wrath. But as we look at Scripture, sure, God's wrath might not be popular, but the Bible is filled with wrath. One scholar identified that there's more references in Scripture to anger and fury and wrath than love and tenderness. Another pastor calls the Bible, it could be called, the book of God's wrath. Wrath is real. I was on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. Yes, me and President Trump, we're both on Twitter. That's about it these days. And Twitter gives me strange suggestions on like the tweets that it thinks that I would be interested in. But this one caught my eye from a fairly prominent Christian singer. And she has a really outstanding voice. But here's what she said. I'll never forget the moment that I left behind my belief in hell. It was the precise moment that catalyzed my greatest healing. I remember thinking, what if, hypothetically, of course, it isn't real? And how the tears that came wailing out of my body in that moment scared me. It took me years, even after that, to excavate the terror that I'd been living with. Oh, the slow drip of chronic trauma from the idea that God would and could and should separate from anyone who didn't find the right combination of belief and charity in this life, or who in my evangelical upbringing didn't come to saving faith. It doesn't matter how convinced some of us are that we'll be caught up in the air to meet Jesus or how sure some of us are that there's nothing at all beyond the material, none of us knows. What is this Christian singer saying? That when she unhitched from her Christian belief, a belief in hell, when she drastically softened her view of God's wrath, that was the moment of freedom. That was the moment of liberation. Why? Why would someone be tempted to do that? Well, maybe somebody thinks that, you know, God should be loving. He's a loving God. He shouldn't be wrathful. Why would a loving God send people to hell? Others think that it just doesn't seem fair that, you know, God would punish someone's earthly sin with an eternal consequence. It doesn't make sense. But we don't have the luxury to just pick and choose the attributes of God that we like or dislike. It doesn't work like that. When we do that, we're in essence creating for ourselves our own lowercase g God that fits our own personality, that fits our own desires. 
And even though our world might try to minimize the wrath of God, we can't make the same mistake. We cannot ignore God's wrath. To do that looks a little bit like waking up tomorrow morning and ignoring a strong pain in our lower right abdomen and trying to mask it with Tylenol and Pepto-Bismol, just hoping that it'll go away. And as the pain increases, so does our dosage of, of pain medication, just trying to hope that it goes away. But when that appendix bursts, things don't look too good. When we think about God's wrath, <laughs> ignoring it is probably the worst thing that we can do. So we've got a choice. We can dig our head in the sand and just pretend like it doesn't exist. Or we can allow the wrath of God as one of the most neglected attributes to transform our view of ourselves, to transform our view of God, and to transform the way that we live our life. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Nahum, somewhere in the middle of the Minor Prophets. And as you're turning there, just some background. We know almost nothing. Actually, we know pretty much nothing about Nahum except what is written in this book. But because of some of the historical markers in the text, we're guessing that this was written somewhere around 620 B.C., about 100 years after the northern tribes were exiled by Assyria and about 35 years before the two southern tribes were uh, defeated by Babylon. There's not too much that we know about Nahum. But what's interesting about this text is that Nahum wrote not to the Israelites, not to the Judeans. Like Obadiah, he actually wrote to a foreign nation. This prophecy is concerning Nineveh. Now, you know the name Nineveh because of Jonah, right? Now, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, the Assyrians. When we think of in terms of uh, the, the biggest, the, the largest villain in the Old Testament, it was certainly the Assyrians. They were the worst of the worst. They were top of the top. They were constant pests for the people of Israel. That was the nation that this prophecy was written to. And when we think of evil, we think of the Assyrians. I mean, one king, he ripped people's lips off when he conquered them. Another king ripped people's face off and he, he burned them alive. They would exile people that they conquered and they would deport them as slaves. They practiced public humiliation and public torture. They used strange psychological warfare and propaganda techniques to somehow uh, intimidate the nations that were next to them. I mean, they were evil. They were terrible people. The book of Jonah tells us that the stench of their sin rose to highest heaven. In other words, they were the worst of the worst. And that's just talking about what they did to other people. That's not chronicling their idolatry, their idol worship. That was the nation that Nahum was writing to. And the Israelites, they hated the Assyrians. I mean, for a hundred years, the Judeans were basically a vassal, a territory of the Assyrians before Assyria was conquered. They did not like this nation, but they were always stronger than them. They were always better than them. They were always knocking on their door. So this book was written to Assyria, but certainly Judah was able to read it as well. And through the text, God promises complete judgment on the nation of Assyria. So I'm actually going to start in chapter 2, verse 13. Look there with me. This is God talking. Behold, I am against you, the Assyrians, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. 
Now that's just one piece of the puzzle. That's just one verse out of three chapters that over and over again, God is promising the complete and the total destruction of Assyria. But when we look at a book like this, maybe we'd expect God to start there, or maybe we'd expect him to start with a chronicle of all the sins that Assyria had committed or how bad they are, but that's actually not where God started. He starts with the nature and the character of himself. Look at chapter 1. I'll read verses 2 through 6. Follow, follow along with me. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. Hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and rocks are broken into pieces by him. Those have to be six of the most terrifying verses in the Old Testament. I just want to start by working through a couple of these verses systematically. Look at the beginning of verse 2. It says, the Lord is jealous. Now, when you and I use that word, we're talking about desiring something, longing for something, wanting something that we don't have and that we also don't have a right to. I could be jealous of toward Jonah's basketball skills that I don't have. I could be jealous of Fritz's sense of style, which I clearly don't have. I could be jealous of Milena's charisma, which I definitely don't have. I could be jealous of Andrew's ability to destroy everyone in board games, which I definitely don't have. When we're jealous, we're desiring something that we don't have but, and that we don't have a right to, but that's not how it works with the Lord. When God is jealous, he's desiring something that he doesn't have, but something that he has a right to. Because when Scripture talks about the jealousy of God, it's always talking about in the context of idolatry and idol worship. Because God created us in His image, in His likeness. He wired us to worship something, ultimately to worship Him. But anytime that we pursue idolatry, worshiping anything besides God, we invoke God's jealousy, longing for something that He doesn't have. And the jealousy of God is connected with His wrath and His vengeance. They fit together. The more that we would invoke God's jealousy, the more that we would invoke his wrath. Remember wrath, God's passionate hatred of wickedness and his righteous response to sin. And it's not just Nahum that talks about God's wrath. I mean, think of a couple passages from Hebrews. Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. Or Hebrews 10, 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Or how about Romans 1.18? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and right, unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Think of the book of Revelation, which is a book that's filled with God's wrath that's coming in the future. We even see later in Revelation the seven bowls of God's wrath that are going to be poured out on the earth. Now, some people look at the Bible and say, well, yeah, the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. <laughs> that's how it works. We don't have two different gods, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. And frankly, I think we get a far clearer picture of God's wrath in the New Testament than we do in the Old Testament. Both his love and his grace get a clearer picture in the New Testament. But God's not just a God of wrath. He's also a God of vengeance. 
which means he will enact retribution. He will return upon sinners to the consequence of their sin. He'll bring punishment on us for our wickedness. He does not and simply cannot just overlook sin and overlook an offense. But we have to understand that God's anger is rarely immediate. And we see that in verse 3. Interesting phrase. God is slow to anger, which is making a distinction between human anger, between God's anger and or God's anger and our anger. Just think of <laughs> Sam's anger. It's often emotional. It often dissipates over time. And it's not often proportionate to the level of the offense. For example, if I didn't get enough sleep, if I'm feeling under the weather, or if I didn't have my coffee, I'm far more prone to react emotionally and get angry. I'm not saying that's okay. I'm just being real. But that's not how God's anger works. God's anger is measured it's consistent, it's even, but at the same time, it doesn't dissipate over time. It's not emotional, it's consistent. God is slow to anger, which means he doesn't wish that any would perish, but that all would reach repentance. God gives us time. But I think some people confuse that attribute of God being slow to anger with just not being just, that God isn't going to enact punishment. It's almost like Nahum is reading our mind because in the next verse he says, and the Lord, or later in that verse he says, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, just because someone looks like they're getting away with sin today, just because we think that maybe God isn't bringing punishment into our life, then we're probably going get to get away with it. It's going to be okay. No, that's not what Nahum says. God can't simply overlook an offense. God will bring judgment and justice to those that are guilty. But at the same time, God is great in power, which is kind of an understatement. God's not just great in power. He's the greatest in power. There's no one that even comes close to how powerful he is. And to try to help us wrap our mind around the power and the greatness of God, Nahum gives us a couple of word pictures as he continues. Halfway through verse 3, God's way is in the whirlwind and the storm. When we think of God's way in a storm— I mean, we think immediately of, of Jesus out on that boat with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is just taking a nap in the hull of the boat. And out of nowhere, this crazy storm comes on the Sea of Galilee, which happens there every once in a while. And the disciples are freaking out because who knows how many of them could swim. The boat is made out of wood, and they are this close to capsizing and finding their way to Davy Jones' locker. But Jesus is still sleeping. So they wake Jesus up like, Jesus, do something. And Jesus stands up and shouts, be calm. And instantly the sea is glass. Can you imagine seeing that? I mean, that'd be the coolest thing. God has control over the storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. We're getting to thunderstorm season. Maybe some of us like storms, maybe we don't. But did you know that one bolt of cloud to ground lightning can carry up to 1 billion volts of electricity? You can't even wrap our mind around that. But see what this text is saying? What could kill us in an instant is what God creates just by walking down the road. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. For every good Israelite, that would bring about the, the memory of the Red Sea when God is bringing his people out of Egypt, but, but they're being trailed by Pharaoh and his army, and they get to the Red Sea, and they're surrounded by every side. There's the sea in front, there's the army in back, and, and they're thinking, you know, 
Which way do I want to die? Do I want to drown or do I want to get beheaded? Both sound terrible. So they cry out to God asking for a miracle. God, do something. And what does God do? He parts the Red Sea and allows the entire nation to walk through on dry ground. It'd be amazing. Or when he holds back the Jordan River at flood stage some 40 years later so that the people can walk through into the promised land. God rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers. Bashan and Carmel withered. The bloom of Lebanon withers. Those three areas were three of the most fertile places in Palestine. But this text is saying that God in an instant could turn the most fertile, the, the, the most luscious of regions into a desert in a second. The mountains quake before him. Hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Do you get a picture of what Nahum's doing? He's asking a very important question. If God is the one who commands earthquakes and thunderstorms, if God's the one who can part the Red Sea and hold back the Jordan River at flood stage, if God's the one that can turn a beautiful land into a desert, if God's the one that can make the sun stand still in the sky, then who can stand before his wrath and his anger? And certainly, the Assyrians cannot. And that's the nature of Nahum's prophecy. What's cool is that we know historically what's promised here came true within a decade of when we think this was written, when Assyria was wiped off the face of the earth in 612 BC. God fulfills his promises. Nothing gets in the way of him accomplishing his divine purposes. But look again with me at verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Certainly this passage doesn't just apply to the Assyrians. It applies to us. Can I stand before God's anger? Can you? Well, certainly not. Well, I know what you're thinking. Come on, Sam. I'm not as bad as the Assyrians. I'm not ripping people's faces off and burning people alive. And my response to that would be, well, good, I hope not. But even that thought uncovers a moral fallacy in our world today that somehow God's wrath is relative. And we talk about this all the time, that God's standard for us, it's not relative, but it's absolute. It's not just wishing that I was better than somebody else. No, we're all broken. We're all sinful before God's holy standard. We're all guilty. We've all invoked God's wrath because of our choices. I know I don't need to convince you that you're a sinner. I mean, imagine if every sin that we've ever committed and thought and attitude and action was printed on a laundry list for all to see. Not only would it be long, but it would be really embarrassing. All of us stand condemned before a holy God each one of us are sinful. And Scripture is clear that the wages of sin, what we've earned from our sin is death, not just earthly death, but eternal death, eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. It's the eternal conclusion of the wrath of God. No one is exempt from His wrath. It's what we've earned. We have to remember that God's punishment is rarely immediate. His punishment is eternal. And the moment that you and I breathe our last breath on earth, or the moment that Jesus returns, that's it. There's not a second chance. There's no purgatory. 
There's no alternative. That's it. Now, the most famous sermon in the history of our country was not about love and grace. It's not about freedom and service. It was about wrath. You've probably heard of it before. Jonathan Edwards said this in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. God's wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. It's nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It's to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night and that you ever suffered to awake again in this world after you close your eyes and sleep. And there's no other reason to be given why you've not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand held you up. Yikes. Just a little intense. I mean, compare that to this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. There are two very different things, aren't they? And I'm not saying the second is wrong or bad, but it does sometimes reduce a little bit of the urgency. Maybe it reduces the reality of God's wrath on our lives. But Edwards paints an interesting picture of God's hand being the only thing that's keeping us out of eternity separated from Him which kind of stands in contrast to this idea that I hear every once in a while, maybe a temptation in young adults in our country that goes a little bit like this, especially young adults that have grown up in the church. I'd say, you know, I'm going to have my fun for a couple years. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to go live my life. I'm going to go do what I want. And then when it's time to get married and slow down and have kids, you know, then I'm going to get saved. Then I'm going to give my life to Jesus and and everything's going to be okay. That's dangerous. That's playing with a ticking time bomb because our lives are a vapor. (laughs) Any one of us could breathe our last breath tonight. Jesus could return at any second. And the moment that he does or the moment that we pass from this life into the next, then that's it. There is no second chance. Each one of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of God to give an account for our life. It's the picture that John paints in Revelation 20. Verse 11 says this. It's happening in the future. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. There was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they'd done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one, of them, according to what they'd done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That's the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's not a pretty picture. But if you were to die today and stand before God, is your name written in Jesus' book. Because at that moment, we have two options. Either we are going to pay the price of God's wrath ourselves for all of eternity, or Jesus paid it for us on the cross. There's no other option. That's it. And for Jesus' death and resurrection to be credited to our account, 
then at some point in our life, we've got to cross the line where we cry out to Jesus asking for his forgiveness, knowing that we're sinners and that we desperately need saving, believing that he died for us, repenting, turning away from our old way of life and following him. That's the only way for us to be saved. Jesus is the only way. Is your name written in this book? Don't leave tonight without knowing for sure. It is the most important decision that any of us could make. Eternity is literally weighing in the balance. But I think for all of us, we still have to hold the reality of God's wrath in tension with the reality of His love and grace. We can't just talk about wrath and hell because then we turn salvation into this get out of hell free card deal, which isn't what we want. But certainly we don't want to minimize God's wrath. And with the rest of our time, I want to give us three reasons why it's important for us to remember God's wrath. Because when we become a Christian, all of our sin, past, present, and future, was paid for at the cross, which is amazing. And we're adopted into God's family. Our debt is paid. Jesus took God's wrath for us. But even when we're adopted into God's family, God still hates our sin. And when we sin and when we violate God's law, what does that do in our hearts? And in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul gives us two different ways we can respond to sin. Worldly grief and godly grief. Here's what 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's two different types of grief over our sin. There's godly grief and there's worldly grief. Godly grief is grieving because our sin hurts our Heavenly Father. And worldly grief is grieving because my sin hurts me. Maybe I can illustrate with a story. I worked at a church in California after I graduated from college. And in my first year out there, I was leading worship. And I, I took a group of college students and high school students up into the mountains to lead worship for a group of junior hires at a weekend retreat. Well, we are on our way back down the mountain, and I was driving my 98 Honda Accord, a manly car. And behind me was the senior pastor's son, who's in college, driving a minivan. And I wasn't going slow. Probably in the 80s, maybe faster, I don't remember. Um, but I didn't think anything of it. I had high school students, college students in my car. And as soon as we pulled back into the parking lot of the church, the senior pastor's son hops out of the car and looks at me and says, you were driving so fast. I couldn't keep up with you. And my heart instantly sank because I thought, oh no, he's going to go home and he's going to tell his dad. And he's going to tell his dad that I was endangering the life of these junior hires. And then I'm going to get fired. I'm going to lose my job and I have to go back to cold Wisconsin. See, that's what's running through my head. <laughs> Is that worldly grief or godly grief? That's worldly grief because I was grieving over a potential consequence of my sin that actually never happened, even though I probably deserved the talking to. When was the last time that we cried over our sin? And I'm not talking about crying because of my consequences. I'm talking about crying because of the way that our sin hurts our Heavenly Father. 
And I think we understand the difference between godly grief and worldly grief. But when we understand the wrath of God, it helps us move into that worldly grief category. And when somebody is looking at pornography, but they don't feel the consequence until they get caught or until they get dumped by their girlfriend or boyfriend, that's worldly grief. When someone's cheating on their taxes, but doesn't think of anything of it until they get audited by the IRS the next year, that's worldly grief. When someone, get, someone is making a habit out of gossiping, doesn't think anything of it until one of those comments gets around and it ruins one of their relationships, and it's worldly grief. And we'll have an opportunity in our small groups tonight to dialogue on even how we can move into the godly grief category in our hearts. But maybe we can move from internal to external for a little bit, because I think when we remember the reality of God's wrath, it provides urgency in our evangelism. Think of it this way. Think of the difference between a family practice clinic and the emergency room. When you go to the family practice clinic, it's often for a checkup or a routine problem. There's not always a lot of urgency. It's just kind of more of a laid-back atmosphere. But compare that with the emergency department or the emergency room. Anything but laid-back. A doctor or nurse doesn't sign up to work in the ER because they like a laid-back environment. There's urgency. Now, certainly it's professional. It's controlled. I think often my evangelism can look a little more like the family practice clinic than the emergency room. Because when we kind of reduce God's wrath, we try to reason it away. We think things like, ah, it's not that big of a deal. Then it reduces the urgency in our evangelism. But when we realize that our friends, our family members, our coworkers that don't know Christ are on the precipice of eternal death, I think that makes things just a little bit more real in our hearts. And someone might say, yeah, but you know, it's God who does the saving anyway. I shouldn't really, it shouldn't be that big of a deal. I shouldn't stress about this. Certainly, is it God who does the saving? Yes, God does the saving. But it doesn't eliminate our responsibility to share the good news. Paul is crystal clear about this in Romans 10. Allow me to read Romans 13, or 10, 13 through 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him who they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Interesting side note. Do you know who Paul is quoting when he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news? He's quoting Nahum. Now, Paul uses it in a different way than Nahum uses it at the end of chapter 1, but that's who he's quoting. Do we have beautiful feet? Are we running towards opportunities to share the gospel? So here's our second principle tonight. Remembering God's wrath energizes our evangelism. Remembering God's wrath energizes our evangelism. I'll come back to the first one. Don't worry, all my type A friends. I can only imagine how I would feel if I get a call tomorrow that my 85-year-old agnostic grandpa passed away. I would feel things like, man, I didn't leave it all in the field. I could have had at least one more conversation with him. 
Who do we need to share the gospel with this week? A coworker, a neighbor, a family member, a friend. That if they died today, they, they wouldn't meet Jesus. Who do we need to share the gospel with? Well, finally, as I remember God's wrath, it exposes the beauty of the gospel. <laughs> now, that sounds like an oxymoron. How can wrath expose something beautiful? Well, it's all a matter of perspective. And nobody knew this perspective better than Jesus, the one who took all of God's wrath on his shoulders when he died for us. And let me finish with an account from Luke chapter 7. It's an interesting account where a Pharisee named Simon invites Jesus into his house. Now, if I'm Jesus, I'm not saying yes to this invitation. I mean, the Pharisees are the guys that wanted Jesus dead. So they're probably inviting him over to trap him. I would have made sure I was at another speaking engagement on the other side of the country, but not Jesus. He says, yes, I'll be there. And as they're reclining at the table eating dinner, before anyone can do anything, and runs this woman. And before they can stop her, she goes right to Jesus, and she's weeping profusely. And she has a bottle of perfume, and she washes Jesus' feet with her tears, uses the perfume, and then dries his feet with her hair, Jesus' stinky, smelly feet. <laughs> and it made the Pharisees really uncomfortable. Because they're thinking, if Jesus was the Son of God, then he would certainly know who this woman was, and he would never let her do that. And Jesus, in a way that only Jesus can do, reads their minds, and he says, Simon, let me tell you a story. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarii is a day's wage. When they couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them is he going to love more? And Simon the Pharisee answered, Well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You've judged rightly. Now, here's the deal. I think we like to think that we're in the 50 denarii variety. That our sin is about as tenth as bad as it probably is. But the truth is that we're all 500 denarii sinners. And that when we understand God's wrath like this woman did, when we understand what we deserve like this woman did, then it motivates our gratitude, it motivates our worship because we realize what we deserve, but we realize what we're being saved from and the beauty of the gospel. So that's our third principle tonight, remembering God's wrath reveals the greatness of His grace. Now, my guess is some of you, some of us might have the opposite problem. Instead of softening God's wrath, maybe you carry it around in a backpack with you every day. And you carry around guilt and shame for things that have already been forgiven. And maybe 
God's wrath is weighing too heavy on your shoulders because the enemy is getting us to believe a lie that sounds like God can never forgive you. God can never love you. You're just too bad to be forgiven. And we walk around carrying the weight of our sin. Which is why we can't just talk about wrath. We've got to talk about forgiveness too. And for part two, (laughs) I'm going to punt until two weeks from tonight. We're going to look at the book of Micah, which gives us an incredible picture of forgiveness and rounds out the picture of God's wrath. So I hope you'll join us for that in two weeks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's been a good night together. Uh, Not an easy topic. And it's easy for me to reduce away your wrath um, and try to soften it at least. Maybe because it makes us feel better, it makes Christianity feel a little bit more palpable. Father, forgive us for the moments that we reduce one of the most important attributes. And may your wrath be real in our life, not because we need to feel extra grief necessarily over our sin, but because we need to understand the bad news before we can see the good news. We need to know what we're saved from to see what we're saved to. So, Father, remind us tonight not just of your wrath, but of your grace and your love for us, that while we were dead in our sin, Christ died for us, and that through the cross that all of our debt can be paid, that we don't have to walk around carrying guilt and shame on our shoulders anymore. So as we take some time dialoguing in our small groups tonight, may you guide our time, make it profitable in Jesus' name. Amen.